Hi, this is Trent England, back with another episode of our Six Questions podcast here at Save Our State, where we defend the Electoral College every uh, every day of the week, every day of the year. So glad to have you part as a part of our audience out there on social media, helping us to defend our Constitution, our system of federalism, and very glad to welcome to Six Questions podcast somebody who I've known for a long time. John was just was just reminding me before we came on the air just how long it has been since uh, he and I were, were both at the Heritage Foundation 17 years ago. Um, John Hendrickson is the policy director for Iowans for Tax Reform, or excuse me, for Iowans for Tax Relief Foundation. And he is also an adjunct professor of history at Regent University. John, welcome to Six Questions. Thank you, Trent. It's good to see you. So the first question, very straightforward, uh, Iowans uh, for Tax Relief Foundation, what are you all about? What do you do? We are a state policy think tank. We're a member of uh, the State Policy Network, and uh, our focus mainly is on state tax and budget policy, but we also do other issues, uh, such as uh, you know educating citizens on the importance of the Electoral College and constitutional principles such as federalism. And, and we also look at education reform. And, and so we also have a C4 organization that uh, does more direct lobbying, uh, which is just Iowans for tax relief. Uh, we were started back in 1978 by our founder, David Stanley. So we've been around for quite some time. And so we've uh, uh, just recently, uh, we're, we're pretty proud that uh, Governor Reynolds uh, signed into law the the biggest taxing uh, uh, cut in in state history. So we were we were very proud to be part of that. Yeah. So that that actually leads right into the second question, uh, which is about that historic tax cut uh, that that your organization was was a, such a big part of. Um, what what does that mean for Iowa? And what what are the I mean, how does that fit into the collection of policies that make a state competitive in our federal yeah. system? And that's that's a great question because as as um, as you and your listeners know, that states are in competition with one another through fiscal federalism. And so, uh, in 2018, Governor Reynolds took over for then Governor Terry Branstad, who was then uh, appointed to be ambassador to China, and tax reform became a priority for her because she realized that Iowa is in economic competition with other states. And so, for example, we could look at South Dakota, our neighbor to the West, which has no income tax. And you can see kind of the job growth between uh, the Iowa side and the South Dakota side. There was a big difference. And also we could see the, the most, um, uh, if you could say the, the most warning sign was we did not want to become Illinois uh, yeah. or even even Minnesota to the north, both high tax states. And so uh, in 2018, Governor Reynolds and the legislature started to cut taxes. And this year uh, became the biggest tax cut where Iowa had been ranked uh, in one of the top 10 worst states in the tax foundation's business tax climate. Uh, and so we had high individual taxes. We had high corporate taxes. In fact, our corporate rate for a while was the highest in the nation at 12%. It's down to 9.8 now. But with this new tax uh, deal that, that was passed by the legislature and signed just a few months ago, Iowa will now have a flat income tax of 3.9%. Uh, 
which makes us one of the leaders, at least here in the Midwest, and even nationally. And our corporate rate will be slowly phased down to 5.5%. And so that was a very substantial tax cut. You know, Iowa having a very progressive tax system, going to a, a flat 3.9% um, tax. And so I think that's going to make us very competitive. And, and so, for example, the Missouri legislature, I don't know if they passed it, they were looking at a legislation to phase out their corporate tax. If they do that, that's going to put more pressure on Iowa to even get our corporate tax rate down even lower from that 5.5%. So, you know, Governor Reynolds, one thing that we really agreed with her on is that she said, Iowa can't be complacent. Iowa can't stand still because all these other states are cutting taxes. And we're seeing what they, in a sense, is, a, is, a, is you know, numerous states cutting taxes. And, and so Iowa is trying to be more competitive by making sure we have a stable financial uh, climate and uh, a good tax climate that we can get more jobs and more people to come to our state. That's great. Yeah. On the personal income tax side, you're, you're certainly uh, out there ahead of Oklahoma where, where I am, where our, yeah. uh, our, our rate had been 5% for a long time and it's, it's recently been cut, but, uh, but yeah, still higher than 3.9. So that's, uh, that's, that's great. Uh, so switching gears here, question number three, John Hendrickson, how would changing our presidential elections from the electoral college to a national popular vote system affect the state of Iowa? Yeah, that's, that's an important question. First of all, if, if we went to a national popular vote, just like NPB is trying to do, it would basically, Iowa literally become flyover country. Uh, right now, Iowa is a, is a, I mean, it's moving to be more of a red state, but historically we've been sort of a swing state. Uh, you know, Barack Obama won Iowa uh, and so did Donald Trump. And, and Iowa is, um, it, right now, candidates count on Iowa's electoral votes. And so the people of Iowa are actually being represented. And also everyone knows that Iowa has, in, in a, you know, this has nothing to do with electoral college, but it's just one interesting point is that we're both Republicans and Democrats tend to allow Iowa to have the first in the nation caucuses. And for example, one of the economic development groups uh, was out in Washington, D.C., lobbying the DNC, trying to get them to keep Iowa first because they said, look at all this money that's coming into Iowa from all these candidates. And what they, you know, what what they don't understand is that if the electoral college goes away, not only is that going to uh, lessen the voice of Iowans and damage federalism, but it's also, we will no longer be first in the nation regardless, because again, it's just, we don't have the population to stand up just like our friends in South Dakota or, or even Nebraska. And so uh, that, that's uh, that should be a top concern for Iowans is that, you know, even more so being First Nations, preserved electoral college, because, you know, you want to make sure that your voice is represented. That's what the founding fathers did. That was the genius of the electoral college, I think, was that they provided a voice for smaller states. Uh, and so, you know, that provides a, a balance, just like the, you know, the Senate does versus the House of Representatives. 
Yeah, so I, I've never been to Iowa for the, the caucuses. And, and I guess we, we should unpack this for, you know, our listeners. We, we've got a lot of listeners who are, um, you know, who are very savvy and been involved in politics. We've got other people who are, you know, sort of just tuning in for the first time and might not know how all this works. So, you know, Iowa first in the nation caucuses as part of the nominating process for president, which is is based on but separate from the Electoral College, which is the state based process by which we, we actually elect presidents yes. from among those nominees. I, I want to ask you, John, for, for question number four here, talking with John Hendrickson, the policy director at Iowans for Tax Relief Foundation. What what is it? that makes Iowa's position valuable. And I'll, I'll just inject my own thoughts here because I, I have been in New Hampshire for their primary and I was kind of a doubter before that. You know, you have New Hampshire and Iowa that have this outsized role, but it blew my mind to see presidential candidates out there campaigning as if they're running for city council, right? So yes. tell us about, I mean, tell us about what that means um, not just for the state of Iowa, but for the rest of the country to have candidates going to Iowa and campaigning in this very different way than you know yeah. what we see in October on television. That's a great question. And, and one thing uh, we call retail politics here in Iowa, just like in New Hampshire. But when candidates come to Iowa, they come to uh, coffee shops, they come to churches, they come to uh, Rotary clubs, Qantas clubs. And so literally you can have a conversation with a presidential candidate, whether they're a front runner or not. And that, that's really unique. And, and as someone who wasn't uh, born and raised in Iowa, when I first moved to Iowa back in 2006, I remember going through my first caucus cycle. I mean, just sitting at a coffee shop with uh, listening to Mike Huckabee and having a cup of coffee and being able to ask them questions or, being able to meet then, you know, candidate Barack Obama and, and uh, listen to what he has to say on the issues. So what Iowa is unique and same with New Hampshire is that these candidates can get vetted a lot more closely. And that also the coverage of that, the nation overall can share in that because in a sense, it forces the candidates to become more personal versus these very staged rallies that can happen in bigger areas where you know, the candidates sort of vet everything. Here you have, uh, they're forced to do Q and A's, they're forced to do meet and greets and that retail politics really does well. And also it also helps, uh, I, you know, lack of better word, lesser tier candidates. So for example, uh, Mike Huckabee or Rick Santorum, or, you know, even uh, I'm just thinking on the Republican side, but candidates that may not have as much money as perceived front runners, they can get a jump through Iowa and New Hampshire because of that retail politics, because, um, you know, it's really much, as you said, that was a good description, just like someone running for city council, because, you know, they have to listen. I remember, uh, for example, at my church, we hosted Rick Santorum, and it was just a group of 20 of us in, a, in, a, in one of our uh, um, church, one of the conference rooms, and, you know, Rick Santorum answered questions for everybody and everyone had a chance to talk with them. And you probably don't get that chance unless you're a multi-million dollar donor in Los Angeles or, or another big city where, you know, and so I think that's where the benefit of Iowa comes in. And, and of course the media is there and that, and they share that the coverage 
gets shared with the rest of the nation. You can see candidates. Uh, for example, Howard Dean. Remember when Howard Dean did that scream? Yeah. Uh, that I mean that 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 sort of uh, uh, you know got him some trouble. But I mean that that's just an example where you know candidates can be vetted at a more closer uh, non-descript way in in Iowa. And you know the other thing is people say, well, Iowa doesn't count because it's not diverse and it's rural. That's that's not true. Iowa is diverse, and we also have urban and rural settings. And so there are, I mean, Des Moines, I mean, I'm not saying, you know, obviously Des Moines isn't a big city, but it is an urban area and yeah. it is growing. It's very, it's growing. Um, and so you, you have um, both urban and rural, you have diverse people here. And also let's face it, rural people should have a, a seat at the table. And oftentimes rural people get bypassed and in Iowa, that's not the case. Rural people uh, candidates have to talk about rural issues. You know, absolutely. Farming, yeah, farming is important. Manufacturing; those are all key issues that come up. Uh, immigration. So, so John, uh, fifth fifth question here of our six questions. Uh, shifting gears a little bit to history, you've written about former President Herbert Hoover who is often loathed by historians. Yeah. Uh, do you think that, I mean, Herbert Hoover, it was, was he underrated? Uh, what, what should people know about Herbert Hoover? Yeah. Hoover definitely is underrated. And I, uh, I, he is my favorite president. Uh, in fact, at, at home, I have a, I have a picture from the uh, 1928 <laughs> campaign. It says this home is for Hoover uh, <laughs> in my living room. But no, Hoover, first of all, he, his story is great. Uh, first of all, uh, he, he was a great humanitarian. I don't know if some of your listeners may or may not know that, but he, he saved millions of people from starvation during World War I, also during World War II. Uh, even after World War I, he, he, he led a humanitarian effort to save uh, Russians from starvation. Uh, and so Hoover had a great humanitarian record. And as president, uh, he also... Uh, you know, I get upset because the other day I was listening and there was a conservative commentator said, well, President Biden is not President Carter 2.0. He's President Herbert Hoover 2.0. And Hoover, uh, you know, the Depression, uh, and, and we probably don't have time to go through everything, but Hoover, Hoover was a conservative president. In fact, when we look at Herbert Hoover, what he did in terms of his policies, he was actually a voice of one calling in the wilderness. He warned us about Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, and it was really the New Deal that that really, uh, you know, really gave teeth to the progressive movement and really changed the way the American government operates. And Hoover warned about that. Hoover was mm -hmm. sort of, a, you know, he sort of is this uh, political orphan. He's not liked by conservatives. He's not liked by by uh, those on the left, but but when we look at what Hoover stood for, what he tried to do, Hoover was a defender of constitutional limited government. Absolutely, that's yeah, that that that's fascinating to me. I, I didn't know almost any of that until uh, my my wife read a biography of Hoover, and yet his history as as a humanitarian in yes. particular, and just a, and a very earnest humanitarian, right? Not someone who was out there doing this, you know, to, to get the, the photo on, uh, on Instagram or something. Right. Yeah. And uh, one one but, thing, you know, he, Hoover and Lou Henry Hoover, his wife, they would do acts of charity in the white house during the depression and they would not allow it to be publicized. 
Yeah. Uh, and so we probably don't know the reach of his charity um, that, that he did just on a personal basis because he did not believe it should be used as a political uh, advantage towards him. Wow. So the last question on our six questions podcast is always the same. Uh, John, who is your favorite founding father and why? <laughs> you know, I, I, I've really struggled with this, but right now I have to say I, my favorite founder is Alexander Hamilton. I, I believe Hamilton is, a, uh, is, in a sense, represented the conservative mm -hmm. uh, philosophy during, during the founding uh, in comparison to Jefferson. Uh, Hamilton is the father of American capitalism. I think Hamilton, for example, and the Federalists uh, had it correct in terms of, uh, and I'm, I'm going to say a cardinal sin here, but uh, I think Hamilton's uh, argument for tariffs was right. Uh, and so I, I think Hamilton, he, you know, Forrest, Forrest McDonald's one of my favorite historians, and he said yeah. that Hamilton sort of breathed life into the Constitution. And so for those reasons, I, I'm, I'm a fan of Hamilton. And I've never saw the play, so that the play Hamilton has no, uh, <laughs> has no uh, bearing on my opinion. But just as a, the more I study the founding, the more, more Hamilton comes out as a, as as someone remarkable, who who was a conservative, and we can see that line, you know, Hamilton and the Federalists with Daniel Webster, Henry Clay, Abraham Lincoln, into the great Republicans of uh, you know uh, Harding and Coolidge and Hoover, who are or my top three favorite presidents. Um, and, and so, you know, that the idea of uh, sort of a of, of conservative nationalism, I guess, is what Hamilton represented. And and so that's that's why I love, hopefully he can stay on the $10 bill. I, you know. <laughs> so. Yeah. No, that, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Hamilton fan as well. And uh, in, in my opinion, at least, the, the musical is well worth seeing. Uh, I, I think I know some some people don't like it because, you know, obviously it it distorts the timeline a little bit for dramatic effect and, and uh, takes some liberties and all that. But I, I don't know. I, I find it uh, I find it very well done. So I, I do uh, I do recommend and, it. You know, one uh, other thing, if I could just just quickly say, and please, yeah. was, uh, I, I finished reading a biography of Roger Sherman and I, you know, he is underrated as a founding father. Yeah. And if any of your listeners want to read a great biography of Roger Sherman, it's by Mark David Hall. It's a great book, um, um, a great biography of Roger Sherman, who also was sort of the architect of the Great Compromise, the Connecticut Compromise. And he's one that that's not really remembered too often, but he's he's also top on my list as well. Yeah, that's great. John Henderson, uh, adjunct professor of history at Regent University, policy director for the Iowans for Tax Relief Foundation. John, thank you so much for being on Six Questions. Thank you, Trent. It, it was, I appreciate the invitation. It's good to see you again. Yeah, always, always good to see you, John. Thanks to all of our listeners and viewers out there uh, for uh, watching this episode of Six Questions. We'll be back with another one next week. Thanks for being a part of what we do at Save Our States, defending the Electoral College all around the country. And 24-7, uh, uh, we, we couldn't do it without you. So thank you so much.